Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Well, welcome to Orange Crest Community Church. My name is Josh DeLaRosa. I'm the senior pastor here at OCC. And last week we began this series of messages doing some reflecting. We're really looking at our lives and we're launching from a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book found near the middle of the Bible. And in this book, a man named Solomon, a king, basically had everything. He was able to have everything, try everything, consider everything. He was able to explore everything. And he he left his journal for us to read. So he sort of wrote down what those experiences were like. And now I don't know about you, uh, but if you were to document your life and, and your reflections, you might cover some pieces of it up. You might censor some of it. Uh, Solomon didn't do that. King Solomon, in, in a good amount of his writings, he gave us sort of an uncensored view of his life. And, and we can learn a great deal, not just from his highlight reel, the best moments of Solomon where he made the best choices, uh, but you actually can also see the poor choices and the disappointments. And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where he journeys down uh, the road of pleasure. So to begin, imagine this. What would it be like if we never told ourselves no? No limits. Now maybe you've had a season of life like that, or maybe you never have. Uh, whether you can relate or not, what keeps you from living without restraint, without limits, without boundaries? What keeps you? Maybe it's that you're married. That's a limit. Maybe you have children. Again, another limit. Maybe your reputation, your future. You see those as limits. Or maybe the fear of consequences. I, I look back and, and I remember a season of, of life where I dabbled with life without limits. I remember the first three months of college that I realized I could sort of do uh, what I wanted to do. My parents were about four hours away. My then high school girlfriend was four hours away. Uh, my roommate didn't know me all that well. He certainly didn't have my parents' number. He couldn't tell on me. I, I had transportation. I had a debit card with a little bit of money in the bank. Uh, I wasn't a leader uh, on my college campus. I, I was I was wrestling with my faith, with my beliefs. I was sort of floating uh, to different groups of friends trying to figure out where did I fit in. So I sort of, in my own way, jumped into pleasure. Literally, a group of friends, I remember at one point, uh, said, hey, we're going bungee jumping. And, I mean, who doesn't want the thrill uh, of bungee jumping or, or skydiving? I, I've I've heard people often talk about their desire to go skydiving. Well, at that point, some friends said, let's go bungee jumping. And so I, I, I went for it. Now, to be completely honest, it freaked me out. I was up on top of the platform thinking, I don't want to jump. <laughs> and I tell you what, I'll never do that again. I never had a thrill quite like that. Now, some of you have been skydiving, and, and I've heard people share their stories. Not not me, and I'm not interested. Don't, don't ask me to go skydiving with you. I'll turn you down. You know, I remember college freshman orientation retreat. For the guys, uh, it was probably, for a handful of guys, it was sort of like a buffet. They just see all of these people. Now, I had a girlfriend at the time, a high school girlfriend, but, but that didn't keep me from considering all these different options because, I mean, how would she ever know? That thought certainly crossed my mind. 
I remember a different time. A group of my friends went to a, a local casino and went gambling in a local casino, and I and I took out sixty dollars, which was a, a hefty surcharge. And within minutes, literally, it was gone. And I went back to the ATM, took out another forty dollars, gone. <laughs> and I remember going back towards the ATM, and my my friend stopped me and he took my wallet. And he's like, "No, don't don't do that." Uh, now, you've maybe had your own seasons of living life without restraint, without limits. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, and let's discover Solomon's conclusions uh, and this season of his life as he describes it. One of the things he states here is this, and we see it pretty clearly. Everyone has a divided heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's really a longing for sin that still resides in each one of us. Now, I've been raised in the church, maybe some of you have, but I still had... Back then, in my college years, and I still have now, a divided heart. Solomon, he had been raised by King David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. Yet, Solomon still had a divided heart. kind of reminds me that each one of us, each person, has to make their own choices. You've got to sort out your own decisions. Now, Solomon had his own encounters with God, and, and still, that didn't hold him back He'd actually been warned by his father. Uh, his father had left countless writings. He could draw from those writings about fearing God and trusting God. But he still needed to make his own conclusions. And, and so let's read from chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Again, this is sort of like stumbling upon a person's diary. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. It said, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. So he's telling himself, he's saying, I said to myself, meaning in my heart, the Hebrew actually adds this, and adds this, uh, and I, I think this translation sort of misses the sense because the idea is, I said to my heart, I said to my deep down in the core decision-making center, he gives himself permission, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy what is good. So he gives himself permission to test out the pleasures of life. Pleasure, just the idea of sensory joy, something that provides a source of of sensory pleasure or happiness. We often think in, think in terms of, of our five senses, and, and, and that does sort of help us get our minds around this idea of pleasure. We have our five senses that we take things in from. We have our taste, uh, you know, just food and drinks. We have uh, the ability to take things in and enjoy the taste of them. Uh, or our smell, which... You know, this represents the sense, the, the maybe even just clean versus uh, rotten. I mean, there's that, that appeal of, you know, clean-smelling items, uh, clean-smelling clothes, or rich, savory smells from foods or from other, you know, from flowers. Um, you know, there's smells that we desire uh, that we would say, hey, those, those are pleasant smells. That's, again, one of our senses. And Solomon, he opens himself up to uh, allow himself to take in all of these different experiences from his taste to his smell and then also to his sight. You know, visually, uh, things that are visually pleasing, things that draw you in, things that you uh, observe and linger on. Our eyes, we, we're captivated by things. We're drawn in. We may really, uh, this is where we uh, would say if, if lust has taken hold, it's, it's generally it's from the eyes and then we take things in from our eyes, and then we begin to process it in our mind. Um, but the, the senses, the sense of sight, is is very much 
a source of, of pleasure. And then also the sense of touch, our ability to touch things, things that feel good, things that are, uh, um, things that are pleasant, things that are intense. These, these senses are part of this pleasure piece. And then our sound, our ability to, to take in beautiful music, beautiful sounds, uh, sounds that fit, sounds that are pleasing. You know, sometimes you, you just, uh, you close your eyes when you listen to music and you, you focus your attention on the sounds that are coming in. So oftentimes these different senses, they're maximized through pleasure. So sometimes we're experiencing several of these senses together. And so Solomon, he basically just says, deep down in my heart, I gave myself permission to test myself with pleasure. And so he determines to run towards the pursuit of pleasure. He gives himself the freedom to do it. He says, enjoy what is good. Don't you want to experience this, Solomon? Don't you want to know what this pleasure is going to feel like, taste like, sound like, look like? You know, but he says this. But it turned out to be futile. Futile. He uses this word hevel again. And basically it's like trying to grasp the wind or trying to grasp smoke. But, but as much as you try to grasp those, you're never able to capture them. Your hands remain empty. Slips through our hands. And he says this over and over through the book. Forty times he uses this word hevel. It basically means meaningless, futility. It was empty. It was a pursuit that I could not find satisfaction in. Now, verse 2, he says, I, I said about laughter... Okay, this is the sound of pleasure, the sound of joy. It's sort of if, but it's a certain kind of sound. This word in the Hebrew of laughter, it's it's almost an arrogant boasting. It's like ha 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 ha. I don't know if you can capture that, and you certainly have, you know, you have certain kinds of laughs. This type of laughter is a laughter tied to arrogant boasting, which is why he, he writes later. I said about laughter, it is madness. Because this word madness is a specific type of foolish behavior. The, the Hebrew word is halal. It's, it's this arrogant, proud person who, who exalts himself to the top, wants to be important. Now, what he's saying is, how crazy am I to exalt myself to the level of thinking that I deserve to have it all? He's cluing us into some of his conclusions that when he gave himself over to the pleasure of of proud arrogance, believing he deserves to have all the pleasure. Uh, this, he's saying, is sheer madness. And about pleasure, he continues, what does this accomplish? What did I really gain? Devil. It's, it's meaningless. It's like trying to grasp the wind or trying to grasp smoke. All of that pleasure, he's saying, it didn't complete me. It didn't bring my life together. Nothing really came from it. And then he starts walking back down the avenues he actually explored. Look at verse 3. I explored with my mind the pool of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he hadn't totally let go of his insight, his understanding and wisdom. So he still had some control. But he said, I explored my, with my mind the pool of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So his quest led him to be pulled towards wine, alcohol. He, he wasn't, he's describing himself as not being out of control. Uh, he was still able to guide his mind towards wisdom. So he wasn't you know, letting go of all restraint. 
He was able to keep his mind under control, but he tried to gratify himself through alcohol. He played with his desires in regard to fun, fun and pleasure. Sort of reminds me of a, of a scene in a movie, uh, The Greatest Showman, where uh, there's a business deal being formed between two characters, and they keep drinking and drinking and drinking more. And I want to show you this scene, because with each time they grab for more alcohol, you know this is affecting their judgment. Right here, right now, I put the offer out. I don't want to chase you down. I know you see it. You run with me, and I can cut you free out of the treachery of walls you keep in. So take a typical for something colorful. And if it's crazy, live a little crazy. You can play it sensible, a king of conventional, or you can risk it all and see. Intriguing, but to go would cost me greatly. So, what percentage of the show would I be taking? Fair enough, you'd want a piece of all the action. I'd give you seven, we could shake and make it happen. I wasn't born this morning, 18 would be just fine. Why not just go ahead and ask for nickels on the dime? 15, I do 8, 12, maybe 9, 10. So in that scene, you have these two characters. Basically, with alcohol, the stakes and the risks just keep going higher and higher and higher and higher, and our judgment gets impaired more and more. And so sometimes people actually ask me about this area. And here's some questions for you. As you're processing the area of alcohol and wine and just its effects, uh, this is certainly one of the pleasures uh, that people enjoy in life. Uh, but I want to just highlight a few things from the Bible. First, what, what warnings are found in God's word about alcohol and drinking? First, Ephesians 5.18 reads, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, drinking doesn't lead to reckless living. So, uh, some would say, you know, that the Bible or that God completely opposes and forbids drinking. But that's, that's actually not the case. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't outlaw drinking. Uh, but... The line between a drink and when you become impaired and you are affected or you're drunk by it, uh, the line is hard to find. It's not a clear line between a drink and when your judgment becomes impaired. And for some, it's sort of like playing with fire. And so there is warnings. And I would just say the Bible gives warnings about uh, the area of alcohol. Here's another one. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Beer is a brawler. Whoever goes astray because of them is not wise. And so there's this, you need to give thought to this area. You need to engage your mind in this area. Don't think there's no effect. This can stir some things up. Here's another question I've heard some people ask. Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Yes, he did. Here's the occasion. This is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It reads, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples uh, were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, 
they don't have any wine. Now, I think the sense I have from this is that this is where he was raised. So these are people that Jesus' family knew. Now, Jesus asked his mother this question, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? And Jesus asked, My hour has not yet come. He's basically not ready to perform a miracle. He's not ready to step into the situation. Uh, but he's willing to. This is his mom asking. So verse 5, his mom says, do whatever he tells you. His mom tells the attendants, or his, his mom tells the people that are serving. And so Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine uh, to allow for their wedding celebration to continue. This is a deep, compassionate act of love for these families and to keep his mother's friends from embarrassment. No one wants to run out of wine. And in the middle of a wedding, that would have been really embarrassing. And so clearly, uh, Jesus turning water into wine, you know, you know, this gives us a sense that consuming alcohol is not something that is forbidden uh, by Jesus. But here's another question to, to wrestle with. What limits should I consider in regards to alcohol consumption? I would say one is leaders have a responsibility and a higher level of accountability. If you're a leader, if you have people looking to you for leadership, looking up to you for leadership, then you have extra accountability and responsibility in this area. Um, and I, I think you should consider leadership on multiple level, levels. I look at Proverbs 31, verse 4 through 7. Uh, this, this is, it, it reads to a king. It is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. So he's saying he, the king may forget to do his job. He may not be in a position to be able to do his job. He may forget the laws. He may forget what is required in a situation and pervert the situation, pervert justice for those who are oppressed. So then this continues. Give beer to the one who is dying and wine to the one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can... Forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Now, how unfortunate and how disappointing to to have a leader who has his judgment impaired right when they need to use good judgment. This is why some people avoid alcohol. Uh, in fact, in my life, this is why I, I mostly avoid alcohol. Unless someone has really gone out of their way to, to give it to me and has paid for it or just you know gone out of their way as an act of kindness or a gesture of kindness, Unless that's the case, I generally just I'll sort of opt for the other option available because my life tends to flow from one interaction to the next, one conversation to the next, and I need to keep a sharp, focused mind. Also, I found that with with alcohol and with my body, I found that just a few sips of alcohol, and I noticed my judgment and my mood both getting affected. And so I need to be the same person in all the different settings that I find myself in, because my role uh, and my position in life and my leadership, it doesn't really shift at 5 o'clock. I don't, after 5 o'clock, step out of my role. No, I literally get calls at 5.30, 7.30, 11.30, after midnight, before 6 a.m. Uh, some of you have roles that are similar to mine, and maybe this is something you need to consider. Here's some more guidance. This is 1 Corinthians 10.31. It reads, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And so this is a great filter to sort of run everything through is 
Is God glorified by what I take in? On any level, is God glorified by what I take in? Glory means means weighty. Glory of God. This is something that is weighty. It has it has the sense of head turning awe and honor. Wow. I mean something that's that is that holds glory is it has so much weight, um, so much honor is drawn and given to it. That's the idea of of glory. And so we're to we're to do things and run everything through this filter of is God glorified by by what I take in? Do our lives, do our habits cause people to see the weight that God holds in our lives? And even just in this situation that I'm in. So, consider that. Now, Paul writes something else. This is Romans 14, verse 21 and 22. He writes, It is a good thing not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Now, he's not forbidding people from drinking, but he's saying when you choose to abstain, it, it, there are situations, it's just a good thing not to eat meat or not to drink wine or to do something, to do anything, he writes, that makes your brother or sister stumble. Then he writes, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. He's saying, if you land, if you conclude that it's better, better to abstain uh, from, let's say, taking in alcohol in a situation. Or maybe you choose to take in alcohol in a situation because we do have the freedom, the Christian freedom to do that. He says, whatever you decide about these matters, keep between yourself and God. And there's just certain things in life that it's, it's, your, it's a judgment call in life. But this is very helpful. Paul says, he gives this, this uh, issue of stumbling blocks. He says, Sometimes what you give yourself license to do becomes a stumbling block for others. And so, when it comes to these issues that you have freedom in, uh, it's not an opportunity for us to boast or to brag or to put on display for others or to highlight. In fact, it can limit your influence in a moment if you do that. This is what's so dangerous about social media. All of the pictures of all of our choices that we make and may decide to put online uh, that can cause your your influence to be totally limited, or maybe uh, people just discount uh, you altogether because of what they see uh, you give license to in your life. Now, uh, your life can be rebuilt, but Paul says you need to think through if it's really worth it, and if it causes a, your brother to stumble, he says. Paul says, look, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything if it causes my brother to stumble. And so when I find myself in a, in a situation where I know a brother or sister is weak in a certain area, then Paul says, look, I, I, I abstain from that. Because why would I cause my brother to be offended or, or, or to be hurt uh, through that situation? I know many people who've, who've lost loved ones uh, or have experienced extreme damage through alcohol and so there are those who um, just being around alcohol there's just a real struggle for them and so it's a stumbling block for some and so another reason just to consider this area which is wrapped up in this category of pleasure now overall alcohol again it's just it's not black and white it's it's really gray in the bible but don't let that be a reason to not think about and think carefully about this whole area now, these days, we actually have to add drugs and now legal addictive 
uh, drugs into this category of pleasure. We need to we need to think about this. Uh, you know, maybe there's things that are legal now that you need to think through. The glory of God. What does this? How does this affect the glory of God? And so I want to encourage you to maybe pause and reflect on this whole area of pleasure. And just because the culture says things are inbounds doesn't mean that God has given you permission to step towards those things. And so uh, you want to run everything through uh, the filters that God's word gives us and his spirit gives us permission to do if you're one of his followers. Now, I've known pastors and ministry leaders who've completely lost their reputation and disqualified themselves from from their careless act or from their hidden sin patterns. And so I've also known good, godly, emerging leaders who were just about to break through. They nearly shipwrecked their marriages uh, through getting tipsy on a work trip and crossing boundaries with members of the opposite sex when they were under the influence. And, and I don't think they realized it. You know, you, you, Again, it's hard to find the line between a drink and when judgment is impaired and a huge choice can be made that can bring tremendous damage. So I've known people to lose their jobs, their license, and loads of money from chasing this aspect of pleasure. And so I want to encourage you to reflect on this question. Does alcohol have a controlling grip on me? Reflect on that. If you think it does, who could you talk to or maybe begin to discuss this with to maybe bring this area of of life under God's control? Let's continue, though. Verse 4, he writes, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit trees in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. So he had wealth. He had this giant estate. He had luxury. Everything his eyes could see were, were impressive and were desired by others. Now, are you trying to keep up with your neighbors? Are you trying to make... Sure that everyone around you notices how much you have. You want them maybe to envy, secretly envy your lifestyle. Sometimes we don't even know the point of all the projects that we're working on. Now in Solomon's case, he had so much going on that people came from foreign lands, hundreds and hundreds of miles away to take in all of Solomon's, uh, the glory of Solomon's estate. Now he went even further. Look at verse 7. He writes, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself. And the treasure of kings and provinces, I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So he has this huge estate. Just like any other king would if they had a giant estate, then he had to have a huge workforce to attend to his property. So you've got all of these servants that he purchased along with their children. So through the years, their, the servants had children. They grew up in Solomon's house. And so that's indicated by this word slave. He had servants and slaves. Essentially, the slaves were those who were born to his servants. They were born in his house, which gave Solomon ownership rights. And so... What's he doing right here? He's just sort of flexing his muscles on all levels. He's like, look at me. I had all these servants, all of, this, all of these people that worked for me. He also mentions his impressive treasury. He had music and singers. Now, that was pretty rare in those days uh, to have musicians. Uh, but Solomon had the ability to afford all these 
musicians, these singers, these full choirs, essentially didn't hold himself back from anything. He didn't certainly didn't hold himself back from sexual pleasure. Whatever he wanted, he took. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verse 3, it states that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, here's what's sad about this. This is God's king doing life the world's way. How sad. God intended him to be an example of, of the goodness of his ways, and here Solomon is proving God wrong. Now, if you're wondering, is this okay? Short answer, it's not okay. And I'm sure a good amount of this lifestyle is, is just a ripple effect of David, Solomon's father, his own sin and his own rebellion. Solomon's father, David, was described as a man after God's own heart. And I just read an article that said, you know, David was that until he wasn't that. Because David made some horrible, rebellious choices. And David paid a price for his sin. David's sexual deviation was so severe that there was, for for David, there was death in his family almost immediately. Then there was death later. Then there was betrayal. And then there's this generational sin pattern that is passed on. We see it here in Solomon's life, and it's going to be passed on through Solomon's life, through his lineage. This is the effect of sin. And so, is this sexual deviation okay? Certainly not. So just remember that what we're reading is... We're sort of reading Solomon's diary. He's just saying, hey, this is this is what I did. He's not he's not necessarily saying this like, hey, look at me. He's not bragging. He's not proud of this. He is reflecting, but we don't see the summary of his reflection at this point. And so it might appear like he's bragging, but you just have to keep reading. So verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. In other words, he was still taking note and trying to reflect on some things, but... Verse 11, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. Now that is where he's just saying, look, in that season of life, I went after everything I wanted. Everything my eyes desired, I didn't deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. So his motto in this season was this, work hard play hard. I mean, basically, he built something spectacular and he was going to enjoy all of it. Essentially, Solomon knew what it would be like if we never told ourselves no. I mean, he he knew what that would be like. Now, before you think you should buy a ticket to Pleasure Island, here's Solomon's point. Verse 11. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile. In a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So let's take a moment. I want you to contrast. Let me just take that in for a moment. He says, I walked down the road of pleasure on all fronts with all my senses. And, and what was the result of all of that? It was futile. It was hebel. It's like trying to grasp the wind. Trying to grasp the smoke. I couldn't do it. There was nothing to be gained with the pursuit of pleasure. It didn't fulfill Solomon. That's his conclusion. So Solomon chases pleasure, and he's empty. Now, contrast that to God. God, in the first chapter of the Bible, it says that God, during this work of this week of creation, he has this perfect week where he's making everything, and he is satisfied. 
So Genesis 1.31 reads, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning the sixth day. So after God makes everything in that first week of creation, he looks over everything he had made, and he was very much pleased and satisfied. It was all good. Contrast that to Solomon. He has the life uh, that some dream of having, all the pleasure in the world. And he says, I did it all. I tried it all. I played with it all. And you know what? It was all empty. It was like smoke. Now, what kind of life would you have to lead to conclude at the end of any season that it was worth it? I want to wrap up with this. Three perspectives on pleasure. First, let's just take Solomon at his word. The way you do this is you realize pleasure without God is empty. It's empty. This is the sad example that Solomon left us. And let's just take note of his lesson. We don't need to walk down that path ourselves to arrive at that conclusion because I guarantee if you choose certain things on the road of pleasure, there's a ripple effect. There's the ripple effect of consequences that you'll pay. Not to mention those connected to you. The ripple effect hits them. There's a there's a, a splatter circle that goes further and further out. So Ecclesiastes two eleven, second part, we can just trust God's word here. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure without God is empty. Second thing we can take away, another perspective on pleasure is this. Decide ahead of time that the eternal matters most. Things that go on past this life will have far greater impact. And even pleasure for us now, even enjoyment for us now, is to know that we went after the right things. Here's a quote from C.T. Studd, a missionary. Only one life, yes, only one. And Now let me say, thy will be done. We, we just get one shot at this life. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Those things that you do for Jesus have an eternal impact. Those things, those lessons you teach to your children, those lessons that you, uh, the, that example you set for others around you that have eternal value. I know right now it's hard to believe this is going to be worth it, but they have eternal value. Don't stop short of pleasing God. Finally, settle in your heart that the greatest pleasures on earth come only under the Lordship of Christ. Bring bring this area of pleasure under Jesus' Lordship. You know, God is not a killjoy. Don't think, oh, if I become a Christ follower, if I become a Christian, then it's just going to be a life where there's no fun. Well, no, settle in your heart that the greatest pleasures on earth actually will come only under the protection, the leadership, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you can actually enjoy the best of life like kings if you do so in balance. We think, oh, no, I need to do this or that. I need to follow those stars and enjoy the pleasure they're enjoying. But over and over, people try that and they find out, just like Solomon, well, that was a waste. I'm still empty. In fact, I feel kind of used up, and now I'm off, and I'm looking again for more enjoyment. So a lot of people, they, they, they don't believe, they don't take God at his word, and so they, they decide, no, I'm going to go off-roading myself. But if instead you will bring everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ, if you'll commit your life to follow him and say, God, it's your way, not my way, and then you allow him through his word to lead you all the days of your life, and then let his spirit direct you. I mean, you can you can experience great pleasures. You can have great enjoyment in this life. 
but it becomes uh, in line with how he has designed life to work. It won't be that you're falling for the cheap substitutes that this world has to offer. And so pleasure and intimacy can be enjoyed in the boundaries of marriage. That's pleasure without guilt. Both men and women are, are more and more just being offered cheap substitutes that don't fulfill. And so I would just say don't, don't buy it. Don't buy the lie that the pleasures of this world and that the sexual opportunities that are all presented around us will fill you up. They won't. They'll leave you empty. Another area of pleasure is, is tied to resources and what you can buy and, and how much you earn. And, and you know, you can actually, if you experience success through your hard work in life, uh, you can have a growing generosity which is fulfilling and can flourish for generations. You can, as God blesses your life through your hard work, through your diligence, uh, you can share that with others. You can invite others in. You can host others well. You can treat others to things that you know they would enjoy. That's a blessing. Again, that's, that is if you find success through your hard work, you can bring that under the Lordship of Christ. You don't have to just spend that all on just trying to, to put together an impressive life. You can actually put something together that is a blessing to others. That is a pleasure and enjoyment, but brought under the Lordship of Christ. It makes me think about the property that we purchase as a church. It won't be the largest property. It won't be the most glamorous property. And it'll be a while before it's completed. But for me, it's it's got me thinking, how can we invite others to enjoy it? Enjoy it. You know, under the Lordship of Christ, all sorts of enjoyment can be found. And so, as we wrap up, I want you to consider this. First, next up, sit down maybe with a trusted friend and evaluate your pursuits of earthly pleasure and then pray for each other. You know, this is an area to not just only do internally, but it's important to, as you're taking in uh, these passages and as you're reflecting and as you're evaluating, uh, don't miss the opportunity to, to stop, to, to consider, to reflect, and then to share that with someone else. Ask them for prayer. Second, choose to trust God and wait on Him. So much of this life and this topic of pleasure is tied to trusting God and just bringing the desires that you have to Him and saying, God, these are things in my life that I'm wrestling through. These are things that I really want. I'm just bringing these to you. I'm laying these before you. Would you help me to wait on you? Help me to bring these things under your lordship. Help me to wait on your timing. Maybe there's some other things that you've considered and that God's spoken to you about. So I want to encourage you to not... uh, Shift gears without considering what step God wants you to take. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this uh, book in the Bible that allows us to do some personal reflection. I pray that for each person who's watching, Lord, you'd help us uh, to do that, to sit, to respond, and then to obey you as you show us our next steps. We pray uh, for your help in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.